good morning, First Family. What a joy it is to be together this morning, isn't it? Well, it is for some of you. <laughs> Let me tell you, aren't you glad you made it through the uh, construction zone? A word of gratitude to those of you who uh, drove the shuttle buses this morning and then the city double-crossed us by filling in those trenches. Isn't that something? Praise the Lord for them anyway. Hey, I want to start by speaking to you dads. You know, being a dad is a powerful and wonderful gift. We are grateful that God has put those in our lives that call us dad. We are grateful that God is our father and shows us how to lead our homes well. Irma Bombeck was an author some years ago, and she wrote a wonderfully poignant piece about dads. And one of the things that stands out in my mind is much of what you just heard in the video that we just saw. They're a son's first hero. They're a daughter's first romance. And they are the one who will set the course for their children's lives. Now, that's not the picture that we see often today on television and in media. They tell us we dads are dispensable. We're an add-on that's not really necessary. Don't you dare believe it, friends. This role that God has given us is a rich and beautiful one. Use it well. I also know that for some of us, Father's Day is a hard thing. Maybe the dad that we have wasn't the one that showed us the way to God the Father. Maybe they were harmful to us or they did things to harm us. I'm sorry. I grieve with you for that. Let us rejoice, though, that God is indeed your Father and that we today can say thank you that that Father never lets us down. Or maybe you're like me and all you can see is the mistakes that you make with your children. You look back and say, I wish I'd done that differently. I'd wish I'd done this differently. You know, one of my professors in seminary was a man named Dr. Roy Fish. He told me something, gosh, 30 years ago now. It was about pastoring, but it was just as poignant about being a dad. God still uses crooked sticks to hit straight licks. So don't underestimate what God can do with you, even if you make a mistake. Dads, we praise God for you. Embrace the role God has given you and lead your home well. Let's pray for dads right now. Jesus, today we come to you as our Heavenly Father. On Father's Day, we praise you that you loved us enough to make us your own. You created us, and you adopted us too. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We are eternally better for you being our Father. And so, Jesus, we thank you today for that. And we also thank you for our earthly fathers, the men that you put in our lives to show us the way, to point out dangers, to give us wisdom, to love us. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for the calling you've given on those of us who are dads to serve as an example of what 
you are. I pray today, Father, for every dad, and instead of seeing ourselves in the mold that the world would put out there for us, that we are dispensable and not that necessary to a healthy home or a healthy life for a child, let us instead embrace your word that calls us to deliberate and passionate action. You've shown that to us, now let us show it to our homes. Gracious Jesus, meet with us in this time together and thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let us take a look at Revelation 11 and let's do so with the twofold purpose of Revelation in mind. One, it is a word of encouragement to the faithful, remember? It's a word of encouragement that says things will not always be as they are now. This is a word of encouragement. The other purpose of Revelation is a word of warning. A word of warning that says things will not always be as they are. If you are outside of Christ, if you are outside of trusting God as your heavenly Father, then be aware your situation has an expiration date. Expiration date. You know, yesterday my wife pulled some cottage cheese out of the refrigerator. I don't like cottage cheese. You can feel free to have my share. She looked at the bottom of it. It had expired in November of 20. I don't know why it was still there. And when I saw it, I was like, that's a perfect picture of exactly what we're talking about tomorrow. This world has an expiration date. It's just not stamped on it yet. At least not that we can see. Revelation is a word of warning to those who would presume that it is always going to be as it is now. It won't be. So when we find Revelation 11, we find both of them in clear relief. And when we find Revelation 11, we will start at the end of our section, read masterfully by my friend Mike. I want you to see the end of verse 13 as we begin. You might say, hey, Darren, you're doing it backwards. Well, hold on with me. There's a good reason. See the last few words. And they gave glory to the God of heaven. It means this, friends. A revival came. And these who had received it as a word of warning changed camps. They moved from one side to the other. It's not too late for you. If you are one who heard this word today already and you're worried, you're fearful, you're fretful, I don't blame you. But let us rejoice that it is not too late and that you today, right here and now, can say, Jesus, I want to be on the word of encouragement side. Now let's go back to the beginning. John has this encounter with an angel, and this time in verse 11, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 1, it says this, I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. This is where we begin our tale today. The temple is restored, and it is led by two witnesses. We'll catch up with them in a couple of verses. Let us pause, though, and say the temple of God will be restored. Now, if you are one who has a definitive position on the end times, you probably have used this verse multiple times. 
Because reading it clearly, reading it literally, suggests that the temple of God that was on Temple Mount in Jerusalem will be raised back. And it will be reconstituted as it was in 70 AD, the last time that temple stood. Now, we're not going to get off in those weeds this morning. If you want to have that conversation, join me next Sunday night, July, June 26th. We're going to take that up and we're going to run with it. We're going to ask why that question exists and what we can do about it. But I want you to notice something. There's no indication that says it's necessarily a literal building. Why is that significant? Well, let's just talk about the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. When you travel to Jerusalem, the city that you're used to seeing actually isn't that old relative to the age of Jerusalem. It's ancient by American terms. The walls were built in about 1600s, about the time we were coming to the, the colonies in the first place. But the Temple Mount itself, the area where we're used to seeing the Dome of the Rock, that's ancient. That is where Solomon's temple stood. It's also where Herod's temple stood. And the Dome of the Rock, the gold-shaped building that you see on top of it, is one of the highest shrines in the Muslim world. In order for the temple to be reconstituted, reconstructed, on the footprint where it originally stood, the Dome of the Rock would have to be destroyed. It would have to be taken down for the footprint for each of those buildings overlaps. You can imagine how much angst that would create. On its best day, Jerusalem is a hotbed of conflict just below Simmer. It is a difficult environment, a city divided into sections to try to keep that down. And yet, if you followed the news over the last six weeks or so, then you've seen it's risen past Simmer and to a boil. There have been a great many conflicts, and most of them related to this same piece of property at Temple Mount. There's been a lot of excitement in theological circles, too, say, oh, this is it. This is the, the, the beginning of, of the coming true of Revelation 11. And a few years ago, there were some guys that took up a cornerstone, and they carried it up to the Temple Mount, intending to lay the cornerstone for the new temple. I want you to notice, though, the Bible never says it's a literal temple. It just says, rise and measure the temple of God. You might say, well, that's quibbling, Darren, but I want to talk with you about the temple of God and its nature. Let us be clear, friends. God does not need a building to be inhabited. This church is not a church because we hang a sign on the wall that says it is a church building, it is a church because you are here. You are the church. And what makes you so is because the living Spirit of God dwells within you. This, friends, means that this temple of God may or may not be literal. It might be within you. The temple of God is spiritual. If we presume, as is rightly so, that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. and John wrote this in 95 A.D., some 25 years later, We'll presume it was a spiritual temple that John was measuring. This rod or cane that verse 1 talks about is a definitive length, and it's one that we'll meet later in Revelation. It means it's a, a means of knowing what and who is there. I want you to imagine that you get a ring on the doorbell, 
you open the door and someone comes in with a tape measure and they start measuring your home. Now, what would you say about that? Hey, take your measuring tape and get out of here. Measure something else. You have no right or dominion here. But if you invite them in, it probably means you're either buying carpet, buying flooring, or you're getting ready to sell it. Friends, this, this kind of dominion that God is demonstrating here says this place belongs to him. He wants to know who's in it, and he wants to know how much. Now, it's not for lack of information that God asks for this. It's for declaration of sovereignty. So here's where we are on the good news side again. The word of encouragement. There is a temple that God has in mind, and we, friends, those in Christ, will be there with it. Can we rejoice in that today? Outside the wall, however, there's a wall around the temple. Outside the wall, there's a courtyard, and that courtyard is taken over by darkness. God's command is clear. Don't measure there. We're giving that over to the nations. The word that is used there declares anybody outside of God's covenant. The courtyard will be given over to them. They'll hold sway over Jerusalem for three and a half years if it is a physical place. These reflect the broken promises of the Antichrist. They will be given free reign. Thus, this is the transition point. I want you to think with me just for a moment about the difference between those outside of the temple and those inside of the temple. We don't know how thick the wall is. Let's just presume it's really thick like some of the walls in Jerusalem. And let's say it's three feet thick. Well, for those three feet, that's the difference between an eternity spent without God and an eternity spent with God. It's a hard reality to be that close and miss it altogether. Think of it this way. When was the last time you walked around the house with your glasses on top of your head looking for your glasses? When was the last time you walked around the house looking for your car keys only to find them in your own hand? Sometimes it's hard to see what is right in front of us. Can I tell you today, friends, let us not make that mistake. For we are given two who will lead us, who will grant wisdom and direction. Let's take a look at the two witnesses, their identity and their work. The identity of the two witnesses and their work is what verses 3 to verse 13 covers. Let us jump right into it. Who are these witnesses and what is their purpose? Here's what the Word of God says. In verse 3, they are God's messengers sent to proclaim truth for three and a half years. Just like the prophets of the Old Testament came, so will these two come. They're unnamed in Scripture, but let us rejoice that God sends them anyway. For in God sending them, get this, my friends, this is good news, God is showing transcendent grace. He doesn't have to send them. Why not just cut them loose? If God were not a patient father, he would. But he is patient. He's loving. He's kind. 
John 3.16, everybody knows. John 3.17 is not quite as familiar. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through his son it might be saved. Herein is proof of that. Friends, I want you to see these two witnesses as God's messengers. Here's another thing that we know about them. They'll have great power, like Elijah and Moses. The Scripture here uses two analogies to help us understand that. Two olive trees, two lampstands. You know, one of, the, one of the cruelest realities about olive trees in the nation of Israel specifically is they are not very pretty. They are the definition of what I would call an ugly tree. Now, where we live, any tree is better than no tree. Let's be clear. But the nation of Israel, those trees live to be quite old. And even if they're ugly, the gratitude that is felt for them is clear, for they stand as centuries, landmarks. Their presence guarantees sustenance, for they give off fruit. Their strength in the middle of a storm is something you can lash on to. It's something you can be sure of. The symbolism is unmistakable. Likewise for the lampstands. Lampstands kept oil in them, and they were always burning. One of the commands in the Levitical law in the book of Leviticus is keep those lamps burning. Strength, tenacity, light. Now we don't know who these two prophets are. Scripture doesn't tell us. But general scholarly's presumption is that we can say they are Moses and Elijah. Oh, brothers and sisters, here's a beautiful picture. Jewish tradition indicated they would return. Jesus met with them on the Mount of Transfiguration. This may very well be Moses and Elijah. Others have suggested it's Peter and Paul. They've come back. Regardless of their identity, what we can be sure of is their faithfulness to God's call on their lives and to God's commission to boldly proclaim God's truth, irrespective of cost. I can't help but believe that God, in his mercy, is sending them. Let's talk about what they do. At the beginning, they'll be protected Anyone who seeks to abuse them will find, find fire raining down on them and consumed by God's wrath. Harming them will be signing your own death warrant. But then things will change. They'll be persecuted and martyred by the beast. Their bodies left to rot in the open, mocked by the world, ridiculed. The beast no doubt believes the victory is complete, and they can stand supremely over those who are God's people. Perhaps they'll even take time to gloat over those they vanquished. There's a symbolic retelling here of where it is they'll be executed. Sodom, Egypt, the place where the Lord was crucified. Now, these three indicators are all very different places 
the place where the Lord was crucified is obviously Jerusalem, Egypt, a place of slavery and restriction and a place of, from which they were delivered. Sodom, a place who rejected God's authority and deviated from God's will. We're not sure any one of those locations. Perhaps John has combined all three of them into one, the city of Rome. For in his thinking, herein was the seat of power. It will appear awfully dark, like God has lost. You've heard, no doubt, some have said God is dead. Some, no doubt, are living as if God is dead. Some presume God's un who hasn't returned yet means that he won't return. But here's where I want to take you back to this twofold purpose of revelation. It's a word of encouragement to the faithful and a word of warning to those outside of Christ. For what looks like an awful defeat, a victory by the beast, will turn into something far different than that in not so very long. For these two witnesses will be resurrected by God's breath. The same breath that breathed everything into motion. Go back to Genesis 1 and you'll find that God didn't do anything with his hands because God doesn't have hands. It was simply by the power of his word that everything came to pass. So it should not be surprising that these two who have been left in the open to rot for three and a half days will be resurrected. Such an event, something they've not seen before, and then, and then they'll ascend to heaven. They'll ascend to heaven just like Jesus did in Acts chapter 1. Herein, we arrive back where we started at verse 13. Let's talk about the results of the ascension. If revelation is that word of warning and that word of encouragement, here it is where it rises to clear obviousness. God's judgment will begin to be expressed. The needle tilts all the way over to this side for he sends an earthquake and 7,000 people are killed. This is in addition to the one-third of the earth killed earlier and the one-quarter of the earth before that. You would think that people would begin to get the message. You would think that people would say, I need to listen to God because he is trying to reach me. What you will find is that the words of Jesus in Matthew 7 are never more clear than in Revelation. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many there will be who find it. But narrow is the way, and steep is the path that leads to life. Only one of those will be found by a broad majority. Be cautious of believing that the majority always has it right. For it isn't, isn't God's word that leads you to that truth. This is the results of the ascension. God sends an earthquake, and those who remain give glory to God. The earthquake kills 7,000 people. 
those who survive offer glory to God. Today, I want to ask you, this moment in time, if that earthquake struck today, which side of that would you be on? The word of warning or the word of encouragement? I want to give you something to take home with you, two somethings, in fact. May we begin where they end. Repentance and giving glory to God. You know, there are a lot of things that we praise God for. Sometimes it's best to recognize we can praise God for all things. Casting Crowns wrote a song, Christian music group, a few years ago. I'll praise you in the storm because you are who you are no matter where I am. A lot of people want to praise God when things are good and then blame God when things are bad or not to their liking. I want to lead you to something other than that. A recognition that God in his sovereignty brings all things together for his glory, even that which is difficult. A recognition that says, Jesus will walk me through this, even in the midst of the valley that I'm walking in. Just this week, I talked to a person that's in the body of Christ. They're in the fifth of six chemo treatments. They were asking me, when will I feel normal again? And it caused my mind to go back five years to when I was where they are, wondering what would God do with this? Let me tell you, friends, if you wait until it's easy to praise God, you may not have that opportunity. Today, I want you to receive what we've talked about today on the word of encouragement side. And how do you do that? By inviting the word of God to bring light into our darkness. You know, we live in a dark time. I guess we always have, even during the time of Christ. We live in a dark time where it sneaks up on us. I read an article this week, and it was a long one in Sports Illustrated, about a football coach in the Pacific Northwest being persecuted because he wanted to pray. He wasn't inviting others to join him. He was just kneeling in silent prayer. A man who served his country, served his nation, Sports Illustrated wrote a 3,000-ish word article to declare this man unfit for service and a danger to American democracy. Let me tell you, friends, the Word of God brings light into darkness, and the darkness does not like it. Today, I want you to recognize that the message of Revelation is the message for each of our lives as well as for our nation. Maybe, just maybe, you've understood that for the first time. That you've recognized you're on this side, but you need to be on this side. Today's your day. This day is the one God has given you. I cannot think of a better way to celebrate Father's Day than by giving your life to Christ and committing yourself to him. Maybe, just maybe, you need to do that today. If that's you, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to Come outside to the Welcome Center just as soon as this service is over. Find me there, and let's talk about how Jesus can be the Lord and Master of your life. If you're not in the building, then I want you to pick up your phone and text the name Jesus to 315-0092. This much I know for, for sure, friends. Jesus came for you. 
not for those who had it all together, but for you. The one whom Jesus died for is you. You don't have to wait until you get dressed up and put all the pieces in place. Quite honestly, if you wait that long, you'll never get there. But today, Jesus offers you a chance to start over. Maybe you've already done that and you've never been baptized. Well, you know what? Today's a good day to have that conversation too. We invite you to come outside and talk with us. Text us and talk with us about it. It is a great day to talk with us about how you can take that first step of Christian obedience. Maybe you need to be a part of this church. We invite you to talk with us about that as well. Perhaps you just need someone to pray with. Oh, friends, that's what shepherds do. That's who we are. That's why Jesus has called us to serve you. Find myself, find one of our other pastors, and let us pray for you. Let's pray together now. Jesus, today you have given us a wonderful and precious gift. Life itself. So today, we choose, Jesus, to use it to both praise you and ask for you to use our lives for your glory. I know, Jesus, there are many who are struggling, who are hurting, who are wounded, either through actions that others have done to them or through mistakes they've made on their own. Thank you, Jesus, that you stand ready and willing to receive them, no matter what that might be. I thank you, Jesus, that the word of Revelation 11 doesn't have to be terrifying, but it sure can be if you're not with you. So let us draw near to you, Jesus, like they did at the end. Let us find in you the strength we need for we know this journey is not yet complete. And to thank you, Jesus, that you're preparing a home for us, just like verse 1 says, a place where we will be with you for all eternity. Gracious Jesus, we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.